Today, the first in a new series called Two Articles and a Book. I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to the Pollitt Podcast. And I will ask all of you to dedicate a moment of complete silence to pray or to meditate if you do not believe in God for peace, to pray for souls of those who has been already killed, for souls of those who may be killed. And I invite the Russian ambassador to pray for salvation. Please, ladies and gentlemen, let us spend a moment in a complete silence. But before moving to a moment of silence, I want to include in the list those people who perished over all these years in Donbass. They also are worthy of being mentioned. Any, all human lives are valuable. Let's not forget them either. But let's, ladies and gentlemen, spend a moment in complete silence. Thank you. The last week has been difficult to comprehend. It's been saddening and it's been thought-provoking all at once. It definitely feels as if there's been some kind of rupture or eventual moment in world politics. And although an analyst or analysts or historians might look back on this and say, oh, nothing changed, or they might might say there's nothing here in regards to history as a whole, or they might say this was just as significant geopolitically as the Suez Crisis, or the occupation of Hungary in 1956. Even though we don't know how this is going to end, it certainly feels like something's changed. And I am the first to say that I'm usually a skeptic of these kinds of things. But the biggest thing I've been surprised about is the international solidarity and cooperation behind Ukraine against Putin's war. Stating this, we've got to remember that conflicts are exceptionally complicated. Always have been and always will. And so I can only recommend that if one is interested in reading the Russian perspective, or at least some sort of perspective that doesn't necessarily justify, but explains the Russian security mindset, I can absolutely recommend reading on the one hand, if you want a international relations thinker, I would absolutely read Mearsheimer's article from 2014, heavily criticised but exceptionally thought-provoking on the enlargement of NATO, making a more insecure Russia. And secondly, Richard Sakwa, whose work on Russia in the post-communist era is quite frankly better than any other thinker, (laughs) better than any other academic I know that writes on the topic. Apologies. (laughs) But Richard Sakwa's work, I think, doesn't seek to justify Russian action, but certainly explains it, and certainly explains the logic that's there. Saying this, however, before I begin today's episode, I would just like to take this time to say Slava Ukraini. Okay, so on to this week's episode. This is the first in hopefully a long series called Two Articles and a Book. In it, what I want to do is I just want to talk to you about two articles and a book that I've read over the last month that I've found particularly fascinating out of all the stuff that I've read. The two articles we're going to focus on today, one is by Joseph Nye, the rather famous liberal internationalist or neoliberal internationalist thinker uh, on cyber warfare and his thoughts on cyber warfare. The second is by uh, Anton Jaeger 
on hyperpolitics and the distinction between politics in the era of post-politics and in the era of hyperpolitics from Jacobin. And the book that we're going to talk about today very briefly is the edited volume Revolutionary World by David Mottetel on global revolutions and the global dimension of revolutions. Okay, let's roll. Now, the first article I'd like to speak about today is titled The End of Cyber Anarchy, How to Build a New Digital Order by Joseph S. Nye Jr. in the January-February 2022 issue of Foreign Affairs. Now, I've chosen to speak about this particular article not only because it was captivating, but because it was written by, of course, Joseph Nye, who is the famed international relations theorist, um, and arguably one of the most influential living international relations theorists. So Nye, as always, gives an exceptionally erudite exposition of his thoughts on norms formation and systematization in regards to the aggressive use of cyber technology in this piece. He begins his work in foreign affairs by emphasizing the threat that weaponized cyber technology entails and the double standards that states, especially Russia, employ. For instance, Russia declared support for cyber norms and even went as far in 2015 as to aid the crafting of 11 voluntary cyber norms with the UN General Assembly, whilst simultaneously conducting cyber operations against their adversaries, like on the Ukrainian power grid in exactly the same week that Russia signed off on the outcome of their diplomatic efforts. <laughs> Once the threats of cyber insecurity are established, Nye's focus is drawn to those who claim that such insecurity serves as the fuel for scepticism against the capability for international norms formation and systematization to limit cyber aggression. This scepticism kind of illuminates only a misunderstanding about how norms function and how they crystallize over time. At least that's what Nye argues. Indeed, the, the sort of suggestion um, is that, and in fact, I'll, I'll quote, uh, the United States must pursue a strategy that combines deterrence and diplomacy to strengthen the guardrails in this new and dangerous world, end quote. And the historical record of establishing norms in other areas offer a useful place to begin constructing such a strategy for the contemporary era. Okay, so the domain of cyberspace, even if we can refer to it as a domain, inherently overcomes the arbitrary territorial distinctions we've basically spent centuries cultivating. <laughs> the best illustration of this, without a doubt, is the scale of the network protests that we've become accustomed to over the past decade. Think of the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, or even the Global Extinction Rebellion movement, all organised and administered on the cyberspatial plane. So cyberspace kind of pries open the supposedly long-set grouting that divides our sovereign territories, making these units just really porous in regards to communication and informational concerns. With this condition of global interconnectedness in mind, the fact of our contemporary world entails the dangers of cyber aggression. This is now fundamentally unavoidable. Thus far, inadequate corporate cybersecurity have huge costs for national security agencies. The example that Nye gives is the Russian attacks on the SolarWinds software, uh, or, or even you could think of the 2014 North Korean Sony Pictures hack, wherein both public and private data, private data being both corporate and personal, were unlawfully accessed and tampered with. 
Nye highlights that the cyber domain is becoming ideal for espionage, and far less traditional attacks are becoming increasingly effective at having physical, perhaps even existential consequences in the material world. A good example that he gives of this was the case of the 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack on the British National Health Service, wherein NHS data was corrupted, appointments cancelled, and havoc wrecked. Naturally, as national security agencies rely heavily on civilian infrastructure, measures must be taken to shore up these insecurities. And that's the argument that Nye goes on to lay out, with an eye to the US role in norms formation and institution to ward off such attacks, making such action illegitimate on a normative level. Uh, Nye's argument still has a handful of pitfalls. There are a couple of issues that I think are worthy uh, to bring up in regards to criticism. The first of these, I think, is the most important. So Nye effectively argues that sceptics reveal a misunderstanding about how norms work and how they're strengthened over time. And that, in fact, by looking at the historical examples we have of norms creation around new technologies, for instance, in regards to like nuclear proliferation, that there is a bank of strategies we can use to show that, in fact, norms can proliferate and norms can become truly universal. My own criticism of this is that that isn't necessarily what sceptics argue. Yes, of course, some sceptics argue that, uh, but they argue that it's a problem to talk about norms creation and to talk about uh, norms crystallization internationally, not because it isn't necessarily possible, but because of concerns about hegemony and polarity. What we have to recall is that in this particular piece, Nye as usual, I must say, conflates the understanding of what's good for the international and what's good for US strategy. So, for instance, like he says in one of the closing paragraphs, he says, diplomacy among democracies on this issue will not be easy, but it will be an important part of US strategy. So the question that I would like to ask is, naturally, Nye seems to assume that what's good for US strategy is also what's good for the international, is also what's good for all. And that isn't necessarily the case. Yes, for what we can see in, of course, that's occurred in the past, and what we can see with a lot of critical realists against the United States, or against any hegemon, actually, is that simply assuming that what is good for the power structure of the international system, that one is on top of, isn't equitable to the good of all states in that system as they define it. And so, for instance, it won't just be difficult to create international norms with Russia and China or other states, be it Iran or North Korea. I mean, that would be much more complicated. It's not just the simple difficulty in regards to actual logistics, but also the difficulty of justice, the difficulty of, of agreeing on what sort of norms be just, so that they don't just simply benefit one state more than another. Secondly, following on from this critique... When I was reading this, the thing that my mind was drawn to was the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact, 
Now, <laughs> that might seem a little bit much, so the 1928 Calabrian Pact outlaws aggressive war. And of course we know that <laughs> it was aggressive war that became one of the founding causes of the second major total conflict. So what we can see is that not only are there attempts, successful attempts at creating norms, which then go on to be able to be enforced and create a stronger sense of international community and cooperation, but there are also attempts at enforcing norms that can collapse and even perhaps become a mode of causality to the inverse. It can become a cause of the very thing that this particular strategy is attempting to avoid. And so there might be a little bit of an ignorance of a tragic dimension, perhaps. But maybe this would be too classical an argument <laughs> to suggest that Nye should have some appreciation of the potential tragedy in a particularly Greek way, the, the, the moral problems that will be created and the effects that can't necessarily be foreseen. My third critique is a use of a term that he has called entanglement. So he argues in this particular article that one of the ways that norms can be created and sustained is through a process of entanglement, where by engaging in a cyber attack on an adversary, a state indeed is engaging in a cyber attack on itself in a roundabout way. Personally, I see this as another extension of the argument made in Power and Interdependence, uh, with Robert Keohane in the 1970s concerning a very famous concept called complex interdependence. And complex interdependence is this idea that every state or states in the increasingly globalised era are interconnected and as a result of their interconnection economically and politically and even technologically, there's an aptitude to complex cooperation. And this creates a more peaceful world, and as such is a mechanism of the democratic peace thesis. <laughs> yeah, it, entanglement just seemed to be an extension of this, or, or maybe the recycling of complex interdependence. And perhaps there needs to be more work gone into this concept, so to distinguish it from complex interdependence, as from simply saying that, well, in the case of Russia, Russia's um, uh, economic system is, of course, internationally bound up with that of America's so by engaging in cyber attacks on private corporations and private company in America companies in America Russia is in itself undermining or limiting its own economic capabilities this is just another extension of complex interdependence so I don't think that concept of entanglement is necessarily fully worked out to the greatest extent that it can um, but it's interesting to see. It's interesting to see how this neoliberal, or at least early neoliberal, um, reasoning that Nye and Keohane developed in power and interdependence is still able to be recycled. Uh, another critique that I had of this was that when we talk about creating norms to limit cyberspace, or at least to, to rein in um, state control over cyberspace, something that's sort of forgotten is the increasing conceptual complexity of this, right? Because, of course, the cyberspace is in itself immaterial. And so to say that there should be increasingly uh, greater state or internationalized or even global norms of restricting the use of that space seems, in my assumption, to be, or at least to go against, the classical liberal norms, um, which have attracted so many to the internet and the use of the internet in the first place. Uh, two examples of this, I think, are cryptocurrency. Um, there's a particularly good book by Jamie Bartlett of um, uh, the think tank Demos. In that, there's sort of an exploration of why cryptocurrency is usually taken up by 
people who are particularly um, a libertarian, precisely because of its lack of regulation. So maybe greater regulation as to what can and can't be used in regards to cyberspace and cyber aggression would only go against the very liberal norms that Nye comes from in the first instance. Another problem that you have with this is the problem of progress and technological progression. So, for instance, like Nye talks about the Internet of Things, but is such a framework with this at the fore already redundant? Because we already have uh, techno-analysts talking about the Internet of Everything. Now, that's not to say that Nye is behind. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I am suggesting is that perhaps the particular phenomenon is moving quicker than norms can be created and crystallized than other norms in the past because of the very way that technological progression functions or because of the very modalities that technological progression flows in the 21st century. One thing I will say is that his point about soft power is excellent. So he makes a point about soft power in this idea that uh, the very notion that uh, a state engages in hacking another state's infrastructure uh, or particular services is sort of looked down on. Um, I think that's a really good point. I think that's a good. I think that's a good place to begin um, uh, for norms formation against, or at least to reduce cyber aggression. Um, and I always, I think that's already coming to the surface. But as things stand, um, every state can simply claim some kind of plausible deniability as a result of the openness of the Internet, as a result of its sort of immaterialism. Uh, For instance, any state could claim that, oh, it was just a lone hacker in our territory, nothing to do with us, despite the clear like state-owned fingerprints left in the metadata or traces of the attack. However, I would like to sort of point out that in a world that's defined by U.S. relative decline on the one hand and the rising international structure of multipolarity on the other, the insecurity that derives from such a structure will be sought to be combated by means that are a projection of competing normative structures, of course. What we see is a reincarnation of great power politics over new technologies, right? The question really is sort of like, which historical trend will it follow? That of proliferation, like the rifle or the Gatling gun, or that of mutually outraged prohibition, like that of poison gas or chemical weapons? So I think what's not discussed by Nye is the extent to which cyber aggression uh, is not necessarily determined by, but comes partially as a result of the increasing multipolar or the emergence of an increasingly multipolar and regional world um, and an order that mirrors this. Whereas Nye's focus seems to be on US strategy almost as a, as a, as a, he- as a hedge bomb. And this is my last point, my last critique, is I think that Nye displays a bit of a hang-up of hegemony, um, that, it, that it's the role of the US to influence norms, but without any awareness of that multipolarity, right? So as the world is becoming increasingly multipolar, it seems to me that an age of compromising diplomacy, a diplomacy that's based on compromise, not of domination and soft power command, is on the horizon. Or, you know, I think that we're at very least entering that world. And we can even see that with the events taking place in Ukraine at the moment with the series of negotiations um who knows by the time that this streams <laughs> that might that situation might have changed but these are all illustrations and i think that um the use of cyberspace in regards to security or at least causing insecurity is still an extension of us relative decline and the projection 
of a multipolar world and states using any formulation of technology they can in order to advance, at very least, their security and power capability. It was a good article, though. (laughs) So the second article I'd like to focus a little bit on today is uh, Anton Jaeger's article from Postpolitics to Hyperpolitics in the February-March issue of Jacobin. What I thought was particularly interesting in Jaeger's text was this brief fleshing out of what he calls hyperpolitics, which I think connects rather well to what the podcasters from Alf Heybongabunga do in their the end of the end of history in regards to sort of periods of anti-politics and politics at the end of the end of history. So what is hyperpolitics? Jaeger says that hyperpolitics is what happens when postpolitics ends, something like furiously stepping on the gas with an empty tank. Questions of what people own and control are increasingly supplanted by questions of who or what people are, replacing clashes of classes with the collaging of identities and morals. I think that what's becoming incredibly more fascinating or incredibly more salient, perhaps, among especially the American left, and indeed actually the European left, is this two trajectories that Jaeger points out, which is that on the one hand, things are becoming more political. In fact, that's his claim that in the contemporary world, everything is politicised, and politicised in different ways. Cultural capital, for instance, where something from a trainer can be marketed to a particular kind of political subject where everything is political on the, on the one hand, and yet there's still a continued decline of political movements, or at least membership to movements. And that's something that I think that Jaeger really hits on that I find personally really fascinating, and would say the article is exceptionally worth reading just for this dimension alone, is this emphasis on uh, the sort of lifestyle of network, this notion of populist, both left and right-wing, decentered political movements that one can't officially be a member of, one can't officially join, one just simply turns up, and then as a result of this is a very loose coalition of ideas um, which don't necessarily demand anything concrete. And I think that's something that Jaeger really hits on and that Jaeger really tries to expound. Um, and how this period of hyperpolitics is in itself not necessarily a reversal or an inversion, but sort of a a, a snow globe turning on its head and back again <laughs> of post-politics or you know history in the era of the end of history in Fukuyama's terms. Um, and a good example of this, for instance, is how Jaeger says the vaccine rollout was a monument um, to certain kinds of enterprise, the dip- disinhibited public-private project, which has become exceptionally significant in the public sphere, especially in the UK. Yeah, where the state channels cash while companies plan and produce the commodity or produce the object itself. I mean, I think a really good example of this where there's been sort of strange reversals in the last two years is 
In the UK, for instance, it would have been almost impossible to imagine Boris Johnson as, or Boris Johnson's government as being the government that renationalized Northern Rail. That's impossible. And so the pandemic particularly has really sped up or acted as a catalyst, perhaps, for some of the processes that were already afoot. And I think that's what Jaeger really, really hits at that I think is particularly interesting. The other thing that he talks about a lot is the way in which this double shift has taken place and the way in which you've had what he cites as being Theda Scotchpole talks about this in uh, Diminished Democracy from 2013, uh, that you've ended up with <laughs> social movements and political movements that are either heads without bodies or bodies without heads. And so what we have is a situation where apathy isn't the characteristic of the political time. We'll all remember in 10 years ago, a decade ago, if not before that, in the post-political realm, consensus was key. Uh, you know, the, the, that the post-democratic era that Colin Crouch talks about. So yeah, so I think that the, the this double reversal, this double shift at the end of post-politics has turned everything to being political, but at the same time, not in the same way we used to understand the political in terms of movement politics, in terms of bodies congregating to act in those class interests. So naturally, there were two thinkers that my mind was drawn to when reading Jaeger's article. The first was with the discussion of populism and with the discussion of post-politics, naturally, Chantal Mouffe. Personally, although I have problems with Chantal Mouffe's understanding of things like the chain of equivalence that she talks about with Ernesto Leclerc in Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, but naturally in a lot of um, uh, Mouffe's texts, for instance, in The Democratic Paradox, um, or even in Agonism, what we see is this sort of a attempt to get beyond the post-political. And I think that matches up with Jaeger quite nicely in this discussion that we have about hyperpolitics, simply because we're sort of th we're sort of thrust into hyperpolitics with Jaeger. Whereas for Move, we're attempting to get beyond post-politics. And so I think there's a link between the two there. And the second was of course the great Mark Fisher. Uh, there's something very Fisherian in Jaeger's writing, um, not only because, of course, he does indeed cite Fisher, but I was drawn to um, uh, the essay, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten its name, on the Vampire's Castle, where he discuss, where f um, uh, Fisher discusses identity politics and how that deters uh, towards an individualistic mode of thinking, uh, but at the same time some kind of um, a very broad populist dimension or that very sort of broad identitarianism, uh, which, as I say, veers away from uh, class politics. And I think there's a really interesting uh, dialogue going on between uh, Jaeger and Fischer. So, yeah, so I would absolutely recommend <laughs> reading the article in Jacobin by Anton Jaeger from Postpolitics to Hyperpolitics. <laughs> Open quote. And yet, despite looking at similar questions and problems, most scholars studying simultaneous revolts and the impact of revolutions beyond state borders have taken little notice of each other's work. 
bringing together the research of leading historians who work on revolutionary moments in history, this volume provides the first general account of the global history of revolutionary waves in the modern age. End quote. So the first book I'd like to take a look at in the two articles in a book series is David Motterdell's edited Revolutionary World, Global Upheaval in the Modern Age, published by Cambridge University Press 2021. The reason why I particularly like Motterdell's edited work, his, this volume, is because it examines the global dimension surrounding revolutions that historically, or even sociologically, we tend to consider as being domestic, or at least sealed off in a domestic shell. For instance, the book is a series of uh, 10, 11 short essays, I say short essays, essays, <laughs> uh, discussing different waves of revolution and different kinds of revolution that are themselves global. So, for instance, the first chapter by David Bell discusses the Atlantic revolutions from the American Revolution, the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution and looks at the dimensions surrounding what made this particular period, this particular wave of revolution interesting or what made this particular wave of revolution distinct. Now, there are two particular areas of this book that I'd like to talk about in this very brief review of Motterdell's edited volume. The first thing I'd like to address is Motterdell's own introduction. The introductory chapter is roughly 37 pages long and is entitled Global Revolution. Aside from laying out the structure and the purpose of the book, one of the things that I particularly found useful in Motterdell's chapter is the discussion or at least the conceptual discussion, as to what revolution actually entails. After uh, discussing a um, uh, basic definition uh, as a condition in which a substantial part of the population challenges its ruler's claim to power over the state, what we get is uh, uh, less uh, a question of how this is distinct from global revolution, um, uh, which might be a, a conceptual clarification that Motterdell lacks, perhaps, is the distinction between the phenomenon of revolution and perhaps the distinctiveness of the phenomenon of global revolution. But this is without a doubt made up within the discussion of what the revolutionary wave is. Now, this is something, for instance, that I've seen discussed uh, by Martin White in his chapter on international revolutions in power politics, uh, discussed in, as a, as a uh, illustration of three revolutionary waves in modernism for white, including counter-revolutionary waves. But what I find really interesting is the is the erudite and thorough manner in which Motadel conceptualizes the revolutionary wave. So he states that a revolutionary wave will be defined as a series of revolutions with similar aims which break out in different states around the same time and which are connected by common external causes and or because they directly impact each other. What I think is fascinating about this is the way that in his very understanding of revolution, revolution naturally entails a global dimension in the modern age. And it's that very dimension that I think is lacking in a lot of discussion. For instance, although it's touched upon by others, for, for instance, Theda Scotchpole in her States and Social Revolutions, 
Or, you know, even in regards to Hannah Arendt's discussion in On Revolution, the essential feature or the essential uh, transnational global feature that is a definite phenomenon of international revolution or of global revolution is often lost. Even if we can talk about someone uh, like David Armstrong's Revolution and World Order, David Armstrong looks mostly at the revolutionary state and its relationship to world order and the way in which different formulations of revolutionary state have adapted the world order or at very least have managed to create a distinct response from said order. And I think that what this particular volume adds is a certain level of uh, transnationalism, this, this, this sort of distinct global character. The revolution and that's enshrined in the revolutionary wave the other chapter that i think is particularly fascinating beyond this sort of conceptual level is the chapter provided by james gelvin on the arab uprisings and the arab spring what i think is particularly fascinating about this work is the way in which it categorizes a whole host of different global revolutions and is indeed at least to my knowledge one of the first volumes that incorporates the Arab Spring alongside the earlier modern revolutions such as the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And because of that, what Motadel's volume provides is a thread of at least historical foundational knowledge in which to understand the manner in which revolution appears to us in the modern world. And because of that, I think it's absolutely worth a read. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, on the Pollitt Podcast, doing two articles and a book. Go and check those out. <laughs> also, please, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. Also, please go and check out the website. There you'll be able to find loads and loads of content that doesn't become a podcast episode. And all the references and citations for everything we discuss in the podcast. Alongside that, I'd just like to say that no matter where you are in the world, stay safe. And remember, when you're in the mood for a think, think Pollitt at www.thinkpollitt.com. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Thank you.